Revelation chapter 6 and 7. My name is Art Alice Green. I'm glad you're here. This morning we're going to take on the four horsemen of the apocalypse, the Antichrist, Armageddon, Great Tribulation. <laughs> um, what do these terms mean? How close are we to the end, the end times? I think we'd all agree that the Middle East isn't a powder keg. The recent events in Iran and Iraq, the drone strike upon Soleimani, the Iraqi general, the Iranian general, the missile strike in Iraq. I believe that the people of Iran are very good people, generous and kind. They love their families. The leader seems to have preponderance of evil in Iran. Um, we see now in Syria this civil war been going on for about nine years. The Russians are in Syria as well as Iranian militia. Great terrorism in the world. Um, should we be surprised by what we're seeing? Um, not really, because there's sin in our world, and there is a timetable we're going to get into. So to catch you up with uh, the series we've been in, Revelation, we did a series entitled Strengthen and Clarify from Revelation 1, 2, and 3. Um, the story begins with John, who's a pastor, a church planter, faithful to proclaim the gospel. And the emperor of Rome is a guy named Domitian, who puts John into prison in Patmos to stop the spread of Christianity. So John's an elderly man in his 80s, working in the quarries, breaking rocks. John's discouraged about being cut off from his people. Um, he loves them. He's worried about the church because Rome has made Christianity legal. Christians are being arrested, imprisoned, martyred all over the world. And Caesar requires every person to pay allegiance to him. So it seems that um, seems to John that Rome has all the power and the world is out of control. He's feeling hopeless as if Rome will crush the church, as if the church may not survive. So what happens in the first chapter of Revelation is that God gives John a vision primarily to encourage him and give him hope. And his vision in chapter 1, he sees a glorious picture of Christ. And Jesus reveals himself and says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. I am the Lord God who is and who was and who is to come. And I think John loved hearing that he is to come. Then, then Jesus addresses the seven churches that John helped to plant. And he brings both a word of encouragement to them, a commendation, as well as he brings a correction. He doesn't mince words. He tells the church what they're doing well and what they're not doing well. And that's in chapters 2 and 3. And if you want to hear the sermons, they're available online. Then we move to chapter 4. And uh, that was our series called A Thrill of Hope. And ha what happens in chapter 4 of Revelation is John is invited into the throne room of God. And he sees him who is seated on the throne. And the person on the throne is the king. He has all authority and all power. He's in charge. Now he knows there's a king sitting in the throne room of Rome. But there's the king of kings sitting on the throne of heaven. The king of Rome has power, but the king of heaven has all power. The king of Rome's reign will end, but the king of heaven, his reign will never end. So John sees this door standing open in heaven. This is Revelation 4.1. And a voice sounding like a trumpet and says, come up here and I will show you what will happen next. So what happens is John is in the spirit and he sees heaven. He comes from earth to heaven and 
We believe that the church will be raptured out before the great tribulation. But there's going to be a judgment upon this earth. There's going to be a time of testing unlike the earth has ever known. Now, as we move to chapter 5 of Revelation, there's some drama. There's some drama on earth. There's some drama in heaven. And the drama is that no one is worthy to open the uh, scroll or tear open the seals. So there's this scroll that he sees with writing on the outside. It doesn't say bounty on it, but it says it's the terms of redemption. And then the inside of the scroll uh, would be the title deed to earth. And so a survey is that of heaven as to who is qualified to break the seal to open the scroll and no one. And John begins to weep because it's very sad because if no one can open this, then the world will go on as it has. But then an angel says to him, do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah. He has triumphed. He is able to open the scrolls. And how does the lion triumph? By becoming a lamb, looking as if he's slain, standing in the center. And then there's this tremendous rejoicing. And they sing a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll to open the seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men from every tribe and language and people and nation. Chapter 6. The first gospel truth I find in chapter 6 is that God is ultimately sovereign over evil. Let's look together at Revelation 6. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and there before me was a white horse, and the rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out to, as a conqueror bent on conquest. Verse 3. When the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard a second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given a power to take peace from the earth and to make men slay one another. To him was given a large sword. And when the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked. And there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales. In his hand. And then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a day's wages, and three quarts of barley for a day's wages. But do not damage the oil of the wine. And when the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades followed close behind. God is ultimately sovereign over all evil. In chapters 4 and 5, we see that God is sitting on the throne. In chapters 6 and 7, we're going to see that God is over everything that happens. All of these seven seals open under the authority of God the Father and of Christ. Notice in verse 1, there are seven seals. Seven signifies totality or completions like there are seven notes on a scale, or there are seven children in a quiver. If you have seven kids, you have a quiver full. 
totality. Or seven days in a week. If you have a full week, it's contained seven days. Seven speaks to totality, completion. And notice this permission is given by God, the authority allowance to open the seals. Look at verse 2. He was given a crown. He was given authority. Verse 4, the writer was given power to take peace from the earth. Verse 8, they were given power over one-fourth of the earth. Now, here's my point. My point is, in a world that seems out of control, God is firmly in control. All the seals are being opened under the sovereign control of God. None of the riders can do anything apart from divine permission. They are on a leash. They are horsemen on a leash. And all these riders are under God's control. Remember the story of Job. There's no question that Satan brought attack upon Job and his family. But before he was attacked, he had to get permission. God told him how far he could go. God was in total control. Now, the real action of Revelation begins here in chapter 6. There's going to be 21 judgments unleashed in the next few chapters. There's seven seals and seven trumpets and seven bowls. And they describe the events that happened during the Great Tribulation. So he opens up the scroll. Now, on the outside of the writing of the scroll would have been the terms of redemption. Christ is repossessing what is rightfully his. The tribulation begins for some seven years and begins with a rider on a white horse. Now, normally when you see a rider on a white horse, that person also has a white hat. The guy with the white horse and the white hat is the good guy, right? In the cowboy movies. He's not, though. He's not the good guy. Ted is right. He's the Antichrist. The confusion happens because Christ, in chapter 19, is going to ride out on a white horse. And this guy is an imitator of Christ, also riding on a white horse. They are completely different people. Revelation 19, it's the Christ. Revelation 6, it's the Antichrist. So Revelation 6 is a bird's eye view of the whole book of Revelation, the big picture. And remember when Jesus said, do not be deceived because many will come in my name. In John 5, 43, Jesus said these words. I come to you in the name of my father and you reject me. But another will come in his own name and you will receive him warmly. What's happening now is the Antichrist is on the scene. And anti can mean instead of, it can also mean opposed to, against. Is the Antichrist against Christ? Or is the Antichrist an imitation instead of Christ? To some, the Antichrist will offer himself as an alternative to Christ. John would say there are already many Antichrists in this world, those that are opposed or against Christ. So here's the differentiate. The Antichrist has a bow but no arrows. When Christ comes, he wields a mighty sword. The Antichrist here is wearing a victor's crown. When Christ comes, he'll come with many crowns, many diadems. The Antichrist initiates the war, whereas Christ puts an end to the war. And the Antichrist here starts the tribulation 
Christ finishes the tribulation. He rides out as a conqueror bent on conquest. He rides out to be the world dictator. He's promising to bring peace and prosperity, to bring peace to the Middle East. You see, it wasn't uncommon for a Roman general to ride into Rome on a white horse and the people would cheer. So this image is very familiar to the people that um, are being written to. This Antichrist will be charismatic, he'll be suave, and he'll be magnetic. But it's all a mask, it's all smoke and mirrors. He's the most evil man the world has ever known. And you know, the Bible speaks about a hundred times to this Antichrist. In a recent poll, 49% of Americans believe that there, there will be an Antichrist, 49%. And 19% believe the Antichrist is alive today. What's funny to me is that every generation of Christians has tried to figure out who is this Antichrist. You know, back in the first century, they believed that Nero, the one persecuting Christians, was the Antichrist because the Roman numerical value of his name added up to 666. Many people believed during the 80s that Gorbachev, was the Antichrist because he had the mark of the beast on his forehead. Little joke. Real little. <laughs> Some people believe that Reagan was the Antichrist because his name is Ronald Reagan, Ronald Wilson Reagan, all six letters in his name, 666. This Antichrist could be alive today. He will rise to power in very difficult times. He will do what no king, no president, no prime minister has ever done. He'll bring about global economic stability and global peace. He'll be hailed as the greatest peacemaker of all time. He'll probably appear, as Time magazine still is, as Time's man of the year. He may win the Nobel Peace Prize. His peace is a pseudo-peace to get his foot in the door and then take over. And that's essentially how dictators do it, right? They start with acts of benevolence, and then they deify themselves and demand worship. Think back to Nazi Germany in the 30s, the Great Depression, uh, economic hardship that nation was in. There arose a leader named Adolf Hitler, and he spoke of their destiny, they were destined to rule. He spoke of the fatherland, the Third Reich. He promised to bring them out of their Great Depression. He was going to help the economy of Germany. But then he began to show his true colors, and he enacted what we know as the final solution. So be on your guard against deception. So the first one has to do with deception, the white horse. Verse 3, and then the lamb opened the second seal. And the second of the living creatures said, come. And what does John see? He sees a bright red horse, a fiery red horse that was given power to take peace from the earth. This is called the war horse, the red horse. The red horse reminds us of the description in Revelation 12 of the fiery red dragon. Satan is behind all of the wars in our world. The thief comes only to kill, steal, and destroy. 
at the coming of Christ, we have peace to those whom God shows his favor. At the coming of Antichrist, we have peace being taken from the earth. You see, a great sword was given to this Antichrist. A short stabbing sword used in combat. Rome had its strategies for doing battle. The Roman soldiers would march out with this huge shield that looked like a door to protect them from the flaming arrows. But when the battles became intense, they would drop their large shield and they would take up their little circular shield and their, their, um, their um, swords, and the short stabbing sword, and the sword would be used in assassinations. You see, the Antichrist seems like a friend, but he stabs you in the back. Jesus in Matthew 24 said, you will hear of wars and threats of wars, but don't panic. Yes, these things must take place, but the end won't come immediately. Nation will go to war against nation and kingdom against kingdom. The rider on the red horse rides out and represents not only nation rising against nation and kingdom against kingdom, but men fighting against men. He will usher in a time of murders, assassinations, bloodshed, revolution that will exceed the worst we have ever seen. You know, we know from history that the First World War, First World War resulted in between 37 and 40 million deaths. It was called the war to end all wars. About 20 years later, the Second World War began. It concluded in 1945. And while estimates vary, between 50 and 80 million people died in the Second World War. And since World War II, wars have followed one after the other at an accelerated pace. There was the Korean War, the Vietnam War, the Persian Gulf Wars, the first and second, Afghanistan, which has lasted 17 years. Wars have claimed the lives of 50 million people in the last 75 years since World War II. In that Second World War I mentioned, I was this summer I went out to Los Alamos, New Mexico, and I saw there the place where those atomic bombs were developed, the, um, the little boy and the fat man that were dropped on Nagasaki and Hiroshima, killing 200,000 people. Now we have hydrogen bombs, which are much more powerful than the atomic bombs. And we have in the world about 13,000 nuclear weapons. About 90% are in the hands of the United States and Russia. The policy pertaining to nuclear weapons was something called MAD, which stood for Mutually Assured Destruction. In essence, if you nuke us, we will nuke you. Now we have rogue nations out there like North Korea and Iran. And both nations are developing their nuclear capacities. And both of them have threatened to attack Israel. President Reagan, when he was in office, he said, every weapon that man has ever developed, he has tried to use. So it won't surprise me if there is the use of nuclear weapons. But in a nuclear war, everybody loses. The second rider brings that forth bloodshed and war. The third rider comes out. <clears throat> it gets kind of worse. It could get worse. 
He comes out in a black horse. He's carrying a pair of scales for weighing food in a high inflation war economy. Back then, if you worked, you had a job, you earned a denarius. And with a denarius, you could buy 10, 15 loaves of bread. But during the Great Tribulation, what will happen is that instead of being able to buy 10 loaves of bread, a denarius will buy one loaf of bread. So each person's wage will be sufficient for them to have food for the day. The price of groceries will rise so high that a person will have to work all day to buy enough food to feed person one meal. That is the black horse. Finally, there's the pale green horse. The lamb opened the fourth seal, and the fourth living creature came, calling a rider on a pale green horse. And the rider's name was Death, followed closely by Hades. So here is the sequence. The drive for conquest is the white horse, which leads to warfare and bloodshed, which is the red horse, which brought about famine and pestilence, which is the black horse, resulting in death in the grave, namely the pale green horse. Those are the first four seals. But let's pick up the fifth seal at verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain. Now notice that, first of all, those that are slain are in the presence of Jesus. Their bodies have been killed, but their souls are with him. Of those who have been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they maintain. That John himself is in prison for his testimony for the word of God. He paid a heavy price to be faithful. And so in the time of the tribulation, there will be many, many martyrs. And they are before the altar of God. And this is what they say. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign God? They know that God himself is sovereign, but they know that injustice has happened upon the earth. They say, How long, sovereign God, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? The cry in heaven of those who've been done wrong is that it be made right. The cry is that there is injustice upon this earth. Won't the just and righteous God bring justice to the earth? Won't you take all things that are wrong and make them right? Won't you avenge our deaths? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been, was completed. And then I watched, verse 12, as he opened the sixth seal, cosmic cataclysm, and there was a great earthquake. We've seen our share of earthquakes happen. The number one state in America to have earthquakes now is Oklahoma. Oklahoma has more earthquakes than any state in the land because of the fracking, the oil work that's going on there. And the sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. And the whole moon turned red. And the stars in the sky fell to earth as figs drop from a fig tree. Many wonder what exactly is going on here in this sixth seal. 
This could be earthquakes and volcanoes and volcanic ash in the air. It also could be, and it describes very well, a nuclear winter. That the nuclear weapons have been unleashed, unfurled, and now the sky is filled with the sediment and the sun appears to be black and the moon appears to be red and it appears as if stars like asteroids and meteorites, meteors are falling to the earth. It's an awful, awful time in human history. Billy Graham, reflecting on this, wrote a book entitled Approaching Hoofbeats. It actually is one of the better books that Billy ever wrote. He wrote the book in 1983, and this is what he said about this. Bible scholars have thought that these scenes described here by the Apostle John to be a description of past events. However, I view them as having to do with the future. In my view, the shadows of all four horsemen already are galloping through the world at this moment. In other words, we can see indications, signs in our world, even now, of these things happening. But they will happen at an even greater intense time during the tribulation. Now, when Billy wrote that in 1983, he said, I hear the approaching hoofbeats. What has happened in the last 37 years? Islam has emerged as the world's most dangerous force. Two Gulf Wars have been fought as well as Afghanistan. Violence continues to escalate in the Middle East. Israel continues to be more and more isolated. We've seen the overthrow of governments in Egypt, Libya, and a civil war in Syria. When you think of all of these conflicts in our world, the world is a much more dangerous place than it ever has been. But we're not quite done. <laughs> There's more. Look at verse number 15. And the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, no matter who you are, no matter how much money you have, no matter what your position is, whether you're a servant, and every free man hid in the caves. It was so bad during the tribulation. They hid themselves in the caves. And they called to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. The wrath of God is being released. Judgment has come to the earth, and there is no escape. So what they're calling for is for these mountains to fall on them to find a place to hide. And here's the great question. For the great day of the wrath has come, and who can stand? Who can stand in such a day? Who is able to stand when the wrath of God falls? But there is some good news in the midst of the bad news. There's going to be protection over God's people. If the church goes up in the rapture, there will be people left behind, but there will be a great evangelistic work. God's spirit will still be at work. People will still be getting saved. The heart of God is that none should ever perish, but all should come to repentance. God desires all men to be saved. He's going to unleash, we'll talk about it next week, two witnesses. Two awesome witnesses. And then he's going to unleash 144,000 
Jewish evangelist. Have you ever seen an on-fire messianic evangelist? Can you imagine you've got 144,000 of these guys? And so what happens is God, first of all, before these cataclysmic judgments happen, he seals his followers. Look at verse 2, chapter 7, verse 2. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. There's a mark of the living God. Just as God marked Cain so that he would not be killed, so God will put his mark on all of his followers. I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put the seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Before these judgments roll out, God's people are going to be sealed. Sealing refers to ownership and protection. Then, as now, when we own something, we put our seal on it to show forth it's ours. When you got your iPhone, you put face recognition or your fingerprint on it to show forth this is your phone. Back in the days when we bought lots of books, uh, we put our name in our book to indicate our ownership of it, right? So the common practice was to show that you own something, protect it, you put your name on it. Ephesians 1.13 says, you were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. Not only is the seal God's ownership, but it's his possession and protection. That we are his and we have been bought with a price. That we are redeemed. That God has purchased us back and we are his possession. So you ask, Pastor, where do we, where is this, what are these 144,000, right? You see them there in verse 4 and following. There's 144,000. Who are these? These 12 tribes that are mentioned having 12,000 sealed from each tribe. Well, the Jehovah's Witnesses claim that they are the 144,000. Now, that worked pretty well until they had 144,000 Jehovah's Witnesses. Now, there's more than 144,000. So they call the 144,000 heavenly witnesses and then the earthly witnesses to make it a little larger. A guy named Herbert Armstrong said that he and his followers were the 144,000. Seven-day Adventists have at one time or another claimed they are the 144,000. So who are these 144,000? I'm asking. Who are these 144,000? They are Jews. John names 12 tribes of Jews. Why Jews? Because Jews have a part in God's prophetic plans. The apostles were Jewish. Jesus himself was Jewish. And the first church in Jerusalem was Jewish. The 144,000 are saved and sealed. They are his people, the Jewish people. This is the time when all Israel will be saved. And you say, where am I in the story, Pastor? I'm glad you asked. It's chapter 7, verse 9. And I looked, and there before me was a great multitude. Oh, we, we see great multitudes at concerts. We see great multitudes at football games. 
But this is a great multitude before the throne of God. And there before me was this great multitude, thousands upon thousands, 10,000 upon 10,000, millions upon millions of followers of the Lamb. And I looked and I saw this great multitude that no one could count. If you were to try to count them, you could not count how many are before the throne. Composed of, from every nation, from every tribe, from every people, from every language. This crowd will be multinational, will be multi-ethnic, will be multilinguistic. It won't matter where you come from. It won't matter what the color of your skin is. It won't matter what language you speak because these people will be before the throne of God and they were wearing white robes indicating purity. They've exchanged their filthy garments for the white robes of the lamb and they'll have little palm branches in their hand. That's sort of like a birthday party, kind of a balloon. <laughs> you know, the last time we knew of palm branches was Jesus presenting himself as king and the people wave their palm branches. Again in heaven, we'll wave our palm branches. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God and who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Oh, there's something I want you to miss. I want you to miss the great tribulation. But there's a scene I want you to be in, this scene, when we cry out, salvation belongs to our God. Salvation is from our God. To be saved means to be delivered from. These people have been saved from the great tribulation, saved into the presence of God. They've been saved from hell. They've been saved to heaven. They've been saved from sin. They've been saved to righteousness. These people were saved. You see, salvation is God's gift he wants to give you that gives you a free pass from the great tribulation. Do you want the free pass? Have you taken the free pass? How do you reconcile yourself with the justice and righteousness of God? Judgment day is coming. It's going to fall to this earth. And those that are left behind will face the wrath of the Lamb and these seven seals. Do you want to be saved from this one who rides out to conquest? Do you want to be saved from the bloodshed and war? Do you want to be saved from the famine? Hey, you know what? We don't even know what hunger feels like. I mean, we miss a lunch. And we say, I'm starving to death. There's people with distended bellies and spindly arms who haven't eaten. And that's what's happening in this time. It's a time of great famine. And there's diseases too. We talk about Zika and Ebola. But there's now diseases we can't control, bacterias that we have no antibiotics for. What I'm saying is this is going to be the worst time ever, but it's also going to be one of the best times ever. It's going to be a worldwide harvest. It's going to be a revival. Oh, it's going to be a revival. There's going to be revival to the church. There's going to be a sweet time of rejoicing. I know about a revival that happened in, in Europe known as the Great Reformation when the Word of God was going forth. And then after revival, the Great Awakening in America under Whitfield and Wesley, when so many were brought into the kingdom. There was a revival in New York City just before the Civil War. 
But this is a revival unprecedented in world history. This will be the revival that sweeps so many into the kingdom of heaven. Look, all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God and said, Amen, praise and glory, wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they and where do they come from? And I answered, sir, you know. And he said, these are those who've come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Have you done the wash? Have you been washed in the blood of the Lamb? And they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. He'll protect them. They didn't have a place to be. They were on the run. They were hiding out. But he will spread his tent over them. And they won't be hungry anymore. They'll never again will hunger. They were hungry during that time of tribulation. And they were thirsty. They didn't, you know, the waters were polluted. They'll never again will they thirst. And the sun will not beat upon them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. I love that thought. He's their shepherd taking care of them. And he will lead them to springs of living water. And look at the last verse of chapter 7. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. In heaven, there will be no sickness. In heaven, there will be no sadness. In heaven, there will be no more sorrow. In heaven, there will be no more divorce. In heaven, there will be no more disease. In heaven, there will be no more Alzheimer's, no more cancer, and no more death. For God will wipe away every tear. So tell me, where would you rather be? On earth during the Great Tribulation or with God in heaven skipping the Great Tribulation? You get to choose. He lays it out clearly here that our hope is in him. Our hope is not in our nation. Our hope is not in our leaders. Our hope is in Christ. And we're looking for the blessed hope and return of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Pray with me. Father, it's a very sobering picture you draw here of the events that may shortly come to pass in this earth. And we all have a choice to make as to whether we are going to follow you and have the seal and the mark of the Lamb or whether we will choose to reject you. Father, there's some here who are wondering where they will stand. So God, in your very presence, we acknowledge that you are God, you are King. What you say is true, that we have sinned and we need a Savior. We need someone who can save us from hell, save us from destruction, save us from the great tribulation, save us from ourselves, save us from our past. A God who can deliver us, a God who's strong and mighty. So God, we turn to you and we believe that you are that savior, that you, Jesus, came for us. Our hope is in you. Would you allow us, Lord, to live a life that's productive and profitable? A life that is about your business, all for the cause of Christ. That whether we live, we live for you. Whether we die, we go to you. 
Father, our lives are in your hands. Our times are in your hands. As we read the newspaper and see the events and read the scripture and see what's going to happen, we see the foot, the foot, the, the hoofbeats of the apocalypse, the four horsemen, just as Billy saw so many years ago and many have seen before him. So, Father, help us be attuned to the times we live in, the urgency, and to really be about telling others the good news about Jesus. Father, use us for your kingdom's sake. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Great Tribulation is going to be really bad. It's going to be worse than the worst country song you've ever heard. Worse than the worst lecture you ever had to endure. It's going to be worse than the preparation for a colonoscopy. It's going to be terrible. But heaven's going to be really sweet. Because in heaven, there's going to be this throne room of God. And all the peoples of all the nations and all the tribes and all the languages, they'll speak Farsi there, they'll speak Hindi there, they'll speak all the languages and all the peoples. And Jesus gave us this commission. He said, I want you to go and make disciples of all those nations. And maybe, just maybe, somebody you disciple is going to be in front of that throne giving praise to God with all the peoples gathered from all time. So let's pray. God, we are your people. We come from a tribe. We come with a language. But there's such a vast multitude in that day. Give us a vision of heaven and what you've called us to do here upon this earth. Give us a sense of urgency. We're just not here taking up space. We're here to be disciples, to make disciples. God, help us to be about your business. Power us with your spirit. God, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Next week, Revelation 11, we'll see you then.